Well, this morning we're going to take a break from Ephesians and go to Matthew chapter 28. And I'll explain why in a minute. Matthew 28, and we're going to look at verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Please bow with me in prayer. O Lord our God, we need your help. Father, I need your help as a, as a frail vessel with a forgetful mind to preach your word in a way that honors you. I recall hearing of Whitfield who, while preaching, said, suddenly God came down. And how the Holy Spirit would come and and melt the hearts of men as the word is preached. Father, help us to know your presence, that the presence of the Holy Spirit in that way melt our hearts of stone. Those who don't know you, that they would surrender to you this day. And build up your people. We need your spirit to convict us. To encourage us. Father, revive our hearts that, that we would not be cold hearted. That we would not be apathetic Christians. But that we would be filled with zeal and with passion for you and your glory. Oh, accomplish this this day, we ask. That you would be glorified. That Christ would be magnified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the, the sovereign grace of God in building his church in the book of Ephesus. And we traced the building up of the church through the book of Acts. And we saw how how Paul worked and and pushed 
back the darkness there in Ephesus. And I mentioned that the health of a church can be gauged by the focus on its mission. We saw that a sign of a sick church is that it is focused on survival rather than its mission as a church. And we came to the conclusion that our mission as a church is the Great Commission. But dear friends, you and I live in a very concerning time. We live in a period of time where people don't think about mission. What, do you, what are you doing? I don't know. I'm living. This is what I do. I live. I wake up and I go about my day. I have no purpose. You see this in individual lives. You, you see this in businesses. What, what is your mission? To make money. This is what we do. But, but, we all, but when we do this, when we live this way, we don't live in obedience. Because we've actually been given a mission that, that we are to work towards. MacArthur says it escapes the understanding and the, con- and the concern. This idea that, that, that we have a mission, that this mission of the church, it escapes the, the mind of most Christians. It escapes their concern. They don't think about it. What is the, the purpose of this church? To gather. To, to hear preaching. To, to worship God. But, but does it go beyond that? And why do we even do that? But here's the question. Is this a big deal? Why address this? Well, what happens when we neglect our mission as a church? Well, first of all, we lose God's blessing as we are disobedient to his word. This is a very serious matter. Conrad and Bayway said, let let no church think that God will bless it when it neglects its mission. You can't say, Lord, bless our church while we do half of what you command us to do. It doesn't work that way. God does not bless disobedience. But what else happens when we neglect our mission? Well, we lose unity. One of my mentors often says a church that is not evangelistic becomes cannibalistic. What happens when when we are not working towards a common mission? We turn on each other. And we begin to argue and fight about secondary and tertiary doctrinal issues. And if you don't wear a tie, now we're going we're to have a debate about you wearing a tie. And if you don't wear a tie, you're not a Christian and you can't come here. We're, we're going to de- debate about all so- sorts of things because we're not exerting any of our energy and force on the mission we've been given. It's amazing what unity you can have when, when you take two people who disagree on secondary issues when you have a common mission. No, I'm not talking about getting in bed with heresy. We don't have the same mission if we don't agree on what the gospel is. But when we agree on those foundational doctrines, 
It's amazing the unity we can have when we work towards a common mission. You think of a sports team with all different background, different, different upbringings, very different people. But, but if their common mission is to win, they, they, they set those things aside often and work together as a team to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Dear friends, you and I can spend all of our time and energy fighting with each other about secondary and tertiary issues, or we can use that same zeal and passion and energy to fulfill our mission as a church together. Very rarely do we have enough energy to do both. And what else happens? Well, when we do this, we become unproductive. We become unproductive because we don't have a clear sense of focus, priority, and direction. We we are busy doing the wrong things. Working in the the business world, you often notice that there's a lot of people with with good skills, but, but nobody plays well together. You have accountants, and you have logistics, and you have production, you have operations, you have all of these different positions. And what does the good leader do? He, 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 he makes all of their strength productive by, by casting a vision and saying, this is our mission as an organization, and this is what we are working towards. And when you take all of these strengths, all of these different people, and have them working towards a common mission, it's amazing how production improves. But dear friends, if we are not focused on our mission, we are not productive even if we are busy. Being productive means doing what God has called the church to do. And so likewise, the health of the church declines. We become a disobedient, nitpicky church focused on the wrong things and unproductive in doing what we've actually been called to do. And because of this, the world suffers. The church should be a shining light. A very sobering question that we have to ask as a church is if this church disappeared from Holland, would the neighborhood notice? Would the neighborhood be affected negatively? It's a sobering thing to think about. Because God has not called us to be a little social club. But but he has called us to impact the world. The the, the disciples turned the world upside down. They, They did not do that by hiding in little groups together and never affecting the world around them. They were on a mission. As I pointed out last time, we have we've already been shown what our mission is. And in order to be a healthy church, we must be faithful to our mission. We know that our mission is the Great Commission. So so what exactly is the Great Commission? And this is what we will consider in our text today. 
So here, after Jesus was raised from the dead and before he ascended, he gave his disciples a command, a commission. And this is what we refer to as the Great Commission. And this tells us our mission as a church. And we're going to look at this text under three headings. Heading number one is our motivation. What is the motivation for the mission? Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice in verse 19 when Jesus is stating our mission, he says, Go therefore. The the, the therefore is calling to mind what is said in verse 18. So, so in other words, the mission is given in light of what Christ is saying here in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, how does this motivate us? Two ways. First, consider the glory of Christ. Here's a man standing here saying all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. But, but, but he was just in the grave, dead, crucified. And now he's standing there with them again, saying that I have all authority. <clears throat> the second person of the Trinity He is God with all authority and power. And yet he'd humbled himself by putting on flesh, being born as a baby, and he subjected himself to the abuse of mere men. He allowed his very creatures to crucify him on a tree that he created. With, with nails made from material from his earth. Humiliated with a crown of thorns that grew in his dirt, nourished by his rain and his sunlight. Beaten. Crucified. His body was in the tomb for for three days, and yet he rose again. Dear friends, Christ did this for you and I. What a Savior. That that he would be able to stand there. Even death could not defeat him. He has all power. And yet subjected himself to human flesh and allowed himself to be crucified for us. What a glorious Christ. The glory and beauty of this Savior who was crucified and rose again, conquering death should motivate us to fulfill our mission. We want others to know about this Savior. Look at what he's done. But secondly, Christ is stating his authority to tell us that something has changed. 
Leon Moore said he made it clear that in his risen state, he was in a very different situation. He had been a penniless preacher and, and healer. But all authority has been given to me, he said, which points to an end to the time when he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Now he has received the fullest possible authority for his authority in heaven and on earth. He is making clear that the limitations that apply throughout the incarnation no longer apply to him. He has supreme authority throughout the universe. Jesus allowed men to spit on him and strike him. Men, what does it do to you if somebody spits in your face? I mean, there's just something that rises up in you. How dare you? Yet Jesus is God. And he subjected himself to that. He was like a lamb going to the slaughter silently, refusing to use his deity in his defense. The God-man subjecting himself to the mistreatment of mortal men. But Paul tells us in Philippians that Christ emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. But guess what? Because he has done this, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above Every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ was viewed as weak, despised. He tried to save everyone else, but save yourself, come down. What a pathetic God. He can't even save himself. What a pathetic man. What a pathetic Savior. Uh, Imagine the disciples. Here Christ is going to give them this this commission to go out and change the world for Christ. To, To go to dark nations and spread the gospel. But Christ, you were just crucified. I mean, they took you and crucified you to a cross. Weakness, frailty. But Christ is saying something is different now. He's no longer the, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, but he, but he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All authority given to him on heaven And on earth, Christians are not commissioned by a weak and helpless Jesus, but by the one with all authority. We've been given our commission, our mission as a church in light of the authority of Christ over all things. The King of kings and Lord of lords has chosen a people 
in this world to be redeemed. And there is a kingdom to expand. And he has given us the high and honored privilege as a church of taking part in this. So what then do we do? Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There are three commands given in this commission. First is to evangelize the lost. Go and make disciples of all nations. What is a disciple? It is a learner, a a student, a pupil, Sproul said that the essence of discipleship is submitting fully to the authority of Christ, the one whose lordship goes beyond just the classroom. Jesus' lordship encompasses all of life. So we are pupils of Christ. Learners who are seeking to be obedient to Christ and submit every area of our lives to his lordship. But how does one become a disciple then? This happens through regeneration. Only God can take an unbeliever and make them a disciple of Christ. So if God must do this, then then what are we responsible for? Evangelism. This is where we begin. For the gospel is the power of of God unto salvation. God uses humans proclaiming the gospel faithfully as instruments in the salvation of the lost. And we are commanded to take the gospel to all people. But now what does this mean for the church? Well, it means that we must be evangelistic as a church. It seems to me that evangelism is not a high priority in most Reformed churches. John Frame, who's one of my favorite theologians, is a Presbyterian. And he talks about how evangelism, organized evangelism, has basically disappeared in the Presbyterian church as an overreaction to Arminian evangelism. And is this not true of Reformed Baptists as well? We say, look at all of these group efforts to evangelize. Those people are Arminian. They're, they're, you know, they're the Billy Graham, Charles Finney type. So we just avoid that. He says, American Presbyterians, and I would add Reformed Baptists, have fought many battles over revivalism and new measures. The results being that those Presbyterians who have remained doctrinally Reformed have often avoided any organized, disciplined, concerted emphasis upon evangelism in their churches. This is a very serious problem. In essence, it amounts to a repudiation of our Lord's great commission. Are we afraid of evangelism because we seem Arminian? or for whatever other thing we're trying to avoid. We see that and we say, well, we're not revivalist, so we don't send people out to do that. 
But as Frame knows, placing the Great Commission as our, as our priority will affect many other things we do. It will challenge us to train our people in evangelism. It will remind us also that even our worship must be intelligible to visitors so that they will fall down and exclaim that God is in our midst. The primary purpose of corporate worship is to worship God. But even our worship should be evangelistic as Christ is proclaimed and magnified. But besides our corporate worship, we must be committed to evangelism as a church. Many have a view of the church that, that the church functions just to meet on Sunday morning, maybe a midweek service, and that's it. But dear friends, if that is the extent of what the church does, it is not fulfilling its mission. What does this look like? Well, first we need to be praying for the lost. But, but it's not just prayer. There, there needs to be actual action. As a church, we should be making efforts to go out and reach the lost. The, the, the go there means that we don't wait for the lost to come to us. We go to them. We, we need to be doing this. Organized evangelism is a good thing, and, and praise God, that is already happening here. But, but let us not think that this is just some extra thing that the church does that really doesn't matter. It's good if we do it, but who cares if we don't? This is part of our primary function as a church. And I know that what I'm saying here will make most of American Christians uncomfortable. Are you telling me that I can't just sit there? That's exactly what I'm telling you. That's exactly what Christ said. Go and make disciples. And this often looks different for different people. But, but the purpose is that the, 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 the idea here, rather, is that we are to go and make disciples. We should be training our members to evangelize. We should be sending out missionaries locally and abroad, everywhere we possibly can. This should be our mission as a church. Missions is not just for other churches. It's not primarily for missions organizations. In Scripture, where were missionaries sent out from? A standalone missionary organization? No. The local church. The local church saw it as its mission to send out people to evangelize the lost, both locally and in every nation possible. This means planting biblical churches whose mission is the Great Commission. We hear people say things such as, well, this is not really a church planning church. And I'm not talking about this church. I'm saying in general. But, but I've heard that. Well, our church is not really a, a, a church planning church. Well, well, what kind of church is it? Not a church that is fulfilling the Great Commission. That's what it is. 
This is our mission. We should be seeking to evangelize and and plant churches that evangelize, that plant churches that evangelize. And also we need to create a culture in our churches of evangelism. Not not just a one-off effort, but a culture of evangelism. You've heard me before mention McConnell and his work in the schemes of Scotland. These are basically the projects of Scotland. And one of the issues that, that, he, that he takes with American Christianity is that we often think that when a person is converted, they need to sit down in a pew until they get a, a doctorate of ministry and then they can go out and evangelize. But by that time, they have adopted a culture of sitting back and watching. I don't evangelize. I sit back and watch. This is what we do here. Maybe one day I'll go out, but I'm not, I'm not ready for that yet. But in their churches, in the, in the, in the, in the way that they have found that to be a, effective there in the schemes of Scotland, is that a person is converted. They come into the church and, and they begin to learn the basics of the gospel. But as soon as they know the basics of the gospel, guess what? They have a large sphere of influence that are all unbelievers. And they begin to go to that sphere of influence and, and share the gospel with them. And they adopt this culture of, of I, I understand the gospel, now I take it out. But American Christianity is vastly different. We don't have that mentality and so we, we, we become Christians and we don't evangelize our lost friends. And what happens is eventually we don't have any more lost friends because all our friends are those in the church. So we don't even make contact with unbelievers anymore. We don't even know they exist. We hear about them on the news, but that's it. But we are called to go out, to engage, to evangelize. And this needs to be not a one-off thing, but part of our culture as a church. But what does this mean for the individual? What does the command to evangelize mean in our individual lives? Well, it means that we need to evangelize our sphere of influence. Most of us have friends, relatives who don't know Christ? Are are we praying for their salvation and hope that they go to a church where they hear the gospel or do we take the gospel to them? The moment you have a child, parents, you have an unbeliever in your home that needs to be evangelized. And this is our mission. We need to be evangelizing in the workplace as opportunity arises. Now, this does not mean that you go to work with the mentality of, I'm just going to evangelize and be lazy. No, you need to do your work and represent Christ well. Be obedient to what Christ calls you to do, but then evangelize when opportunity arises. This means joining the evangelism efforts of the church. Now, once again, I know that, 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 for example, street evangelism is not for everyone. But don't say that until you've tried it. And, and there are all different types of functions, all different types of support that can be offered. But, but we need to somehow be engaged in the evangelism of the local church. 
And we need to be supporting the church financially so that it can increase and grow its evangelistic efforts so that the church can can plant other churches and send out missionaries. We need to be focused on these things, using our resources for kingdom work. Evangelism is a major part of the great commission that we've been given. But it is not the whole of it. So what is the second command in the Great Commission? Verse 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are to be baptizing new converts and bringing them in to the body of Christ where they begin to be discipled. You actually have evangelists out there who will say, you need to turn to Christ, but by the way, don't go to any churches because they're all bad. Don't go to church. You don't need church. You just need to come to Christ. That's what we hear. But the church, one of the the, the primary places of discipleship, where it should begin, that the new believer needs to be brought into the church where they are rubbing shoulders with other believers, where they are hearing the word. And this this is the third command, ongoing discipleship. Teaching obedience to Christ. Verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Many, many believe that the Great Commission is simply evangelistic. If you ever listen to Stephen Furtick, and I advise that you don't. Some people say Stephen Heretic, but you know... But but here's what he says. That the church needs to evangelize. Sunday morning is about evangelism. If you want to go and get spiritually obese on doctrine, go someplace else. Because I'm not going to feed you here. You get the gospel here. In essence, this is what he says. No discipleship. We're all about the gospel. Once you understand the gospel, this church is not for you anymore. And if you don't think this is a problem, you should see his following. This is a major problem, a major misunderstanding, but, but, but equally as important as evangelism is discipleship. Frame says it has often been pointed out that the Great Commission is not narrowly evangelistic. It does not single out evangelism as the church's task over and against the nurture of those who are already Christians. Rather, it includes both. We are to make and baptize disciples, but also to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded us. Clearly then, there is something wrong with a church which focuses on evangelism, but in which the new converts remain spiritual babies. Our churches should not have members who have been members for 10, 20 years who are spiritual babies. Doctrinal babies. That that means that we are not discipling. 
As Sproul put it, the Great Commission is the call of Christ for his disciples to extend his authority over the whole world. We are to share the gospel with everyone so that more and more people might call him master. This calling is not simply a call to evangelize. Rather, Christ calls us to make disciples. Disciples are people who have committed in their hearts and minds to follow the thinking and conduct of the master forever. Such Discipleship is a lifelong process. The church must be committed to discipling believers. Teaching disciples to obey. Not just teaching them what Christ commands, teaching them to obey what Christ commands. This means obeying all of Scripture and allowing all of Scripture to shape every area of our lives. As Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You need to go to Scripture and say, how do I do that? That is what it means to be a disciple. But what does this discipleship mean for us as individuals in a local church? Well, first of all, we need to be committed to being disciples ourselves. Always seeking to learn and to grow in obedience. Well, I'm just not into that theology stuff. Should be words that never comes out of a Christian's mouth. Big systematic theologies are not just for, for, for pastors and preachers and teachers. Those things are for every Christian. Difference we need. Disciples can't be lazy. We have to learn to be listeners. We have to learn to be readers. We have to learn to study. I know it's hard. But how do we know how to live our lives if we are not studying how to obey Christ? This is the disciples' task to obey all that Christ commands. This Bible is pretty thick. We better get to studying. But we should also then be committed to the local church. Because this, in a large part, this is where discipleship happens. I'll mention Mez McConnell again. One of the things that they've noted, or noticed rather, you take a, 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 a nonprofit, a mercy ministry, a food pantry, and they're not subjected to a church. They're just a standalone parachurch ministry, maybe. And they go into an area, and they are there for decades with no change in the community. Why is that? Because their task is not the Great Commission. Their task is to feed mouths. The difference is that is where the church needs to be. Because the church, the church's task is to make disciples. So so this is why we are committed to the local church. We we come to the local church because we we are made disciples here. We learn. We grow. But also we must be committed individually to discipleship, to making other disciples. And we don't need positions and titles to do this. 
What do we see in Titus 2, for example? Older women training younger women. That is discipleship. The older woman training the younger woman to love her husband and her children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to her own husband. That is discipleship. Do we do that? Do we disciple one another in that way? Imagine the impact on this church and this community if each one of us had that mindset. You know what? I want to find someone, no matter what age I'm at, if I'm a Christian, I want to find someone and begin to disciple them. And some other churches, again in, in Scotland, where you have people coming in off the streets, they're, 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 you know, they're, they have rougher lives. And these people, they recognize need, they need aggressive discipleship because what they've noticed is that in the American church, if you become a believer, you usually sit in a church for years and and nobody makes an effort to try to disciple you or to help you grow. So what they've done there is they've actually assigned people. Here's a new convert. Okay, we're going to send you to to, to go and disciple them on a one-on-one basis. You're going to live life with them in a manner of speaking. You're going to be in their home. You're going to have them in your home, and you are going to disciple them. But in our churches, we don't typically know that type of discipleship. But again, imagine the impact. If we just targeted one person, said, I want to evangelize and disciple this person, and you have 50 people who do that, and they're evangelizing just one person apiece and, and discipling them on a regular basis. Imagine the impact in this culture if Christians were that committed to seeing their brothers and their sisters grow in Christ. But we typically say to each their own, that's not my business. Such should not be the case. But what else does this mean for individuals? Husbands. You have a wife? You are called to disciple her. Washing her with the water of the word. Raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That is discipleship. Moms. It can be so easy to think that being stuck in your home with those little kids is meaningless, insignificant. Oh, I wish I could go off to the, to the mission field in Africa where I can make an impact on the world. What an impact you're making in your home when you're discipling those little kids for Christ. As I've heard it said Moms, you are expanding the kingdom in your kitchen when you are washing dishes for the glory of God. This is not meaningless work. God has given us little people in our homes that need to be discipled. And may we not be a people who who forsake that for, for some greater cause. May we understand that this, parents, is our primary mission field, our home. This is our primary mission field. 
Do not despise it. But also we should be using our influence in the workplace, wherever else we go, not only to evangelize, but to make disciples. Do do you know of, of a Christian who works for you and he's a baby Christian? He works with you or work for you. Take it upon yourself to disciple them, to, to teach them, to, to, to show them how to obey Christ. And what does this mean for the church? It means that we are to be committed to being a church that not only evangelizes, but, but takes it serious, takes our discipleship serious. And how do we do this? We need to be faithfully preaching and teaching the word. This is why we have Bible studies. This is why we have book studies. This is why we do small groups. Difference, we need to be building relationships with one another where we can sharpen one another and encourage one another. In essence, we need to be doing life together. Once again, in most of American Christianity, you come to church, and then as soon as the church is closed, it's like a stampede out the back door. You better, you better not stand in the way or you will get ran over. I'll see you guys again next Sunday. Discipleship does not take place that way. We need to know one another. We need to have one another in our homes, at our tables discipling one another, encouraging one another, talking about doctrine, talking about theology, talking about practical things, talking about how to be a husband, about how to be a wife, how to be a better parent. We we need to be helping one another on this journey. This is what the church should do. The, The local church should be a group of believers who do life together. Not just who worship together on Sunday. But once again, we also need to be planning churches and seeing this as one of the primary disciple-making tools in the kingdom. We need to be saying, well, let's go plant a church here in Michigan. Let's go plant a church there in that state. Let's go plant a church in that country because we are serious about discipleship. There are people there who know Christ or who need to know Christ, who need to be discipled. The the, the church should be busy with kingdom work. Not dead. Not retired. Not apathetic. I think of Calvin in Geneva preaching the gospel, training missionaries and sending them off, evangelizing the magistrates to create more gospel opportunities, establishing printing presses. By Calvin's death, there were at least 34 printing houses in Geneva. That's amazing. Why was he doing that? The church needed to disciple the nations. Print it The Geneva Bible. The foundational Bible for the Puritans. What an amazing thing. The historian Michael Haken wrote that it has been estimated that by 1562, some 2,150 congregations had been established in France with around 3 million members 
many of them converts through the witness of men trained in Geneva. Amazing to think about. Here's a church so committed to kingdom work that over 2,100 churches established and, and, and over 3 million Christians, 3 million people converted by men who are trained in one city. That is astounding. But that is the difference between the person, or the church rather, who, who, who does not see their mission as the Great Commission and, and, and a church who does. The, the, the church that does not see its mission as the Great Commission dies when its members dies. Where I come from, there are many, many churches dying off. All of the young people have left, just a few members left, dying off. There was never a vision for, for, for the Great Commission. This was a social club. And when all of the members of the social club died or left, that was the end of it. Calvin, Calvin said, when I consider how very important this corner, referring to Geneva, is for the propagation of the kingdom of Christ, I have good reason to be anxious that it should be carefully watched over. That is what commitment to the Great Commission looks like. Diligent work for the propagation of the kingdom of Christ. Could we say, harbor is very important for the propagation of the kingdom of Christ? Or are we insignificant? That is a very serious question we must ask. And let me add one more point here about the Great Commission. A bit of a clarification. What exactly does it mean to make disciples? And teach them to obey. We should not be attempting to create disciples, our churches, that are insignificant to our world. Here's what I mean. Being a disciple is not just about being a good Christian in private. But allowing our faith to influence everything we put our hands to. When disciples of Christ are faithful in obeying Christ in every area of our lives, something great happens. The culture begins to be influenced by Christianity. And I would argue that this is part of our commission. To influence the culture. To change the world around us. As Van, Dill, as Van Til said, culture is simply religion externalized. If you want to know what the predominant religion in an area is, look at its culture. Different Christians should be culture changers. Not just the culture of our homes, but of everything we put our hands to, everything we touch. The Christian business owner has a duty to run his business in a way that pleases God. Christ is Lord of his business. Do we believe that? The Christian employee has a duty to work as unto the Lord because Christ is Lord. But we don't leave our faith at home when we enter the business and political realm. 
We as Christians today act like these things are neutral. And we say things such as, well, we're not trying to Christianize a city. That's exactly what we want to do. This is what Patrick did in Ireland. He did not say, believe in Christ, but whatever happens outside of the church doesn't matter. No. Their culture was barbaric and satanic, so it was the duty of the Christians there to change it. Not to accept it and say the church doesn't have anything to say about that. True disciples submit every area of their lives to the lordship of Christ. And they use their influence and position, no matter where they are, to advance the kingdom. Did you notice what Sproul said? He said, the great commission is the call of Christ for his disciples to extend his authority over the whole world. And what is he getting at? This may be a new concept for some. But you on this. This is not just about saving souls. But, but seeking to submit all that we do to Christ, Lordship. But believing that Christ actually cares about how we run our businesses and how we live our lives. In essence, we need to be asking ourselves, as some theologians have, what, what is the relationship to the cultural mandate in Genesis and the Great Commission here in Matthew. As Frame points out, Reformed theologians have sometimes asked how the Great Commission is related to the cultural mandate of Genesis, where God commanded Adam to fill and subdue the earth. It seems to me that the Great Commission applies the cultural mandate to the situation after the fall. If we are to fill the earth with people who will subdue it to God's glory, we must first evangelize and teach them. As such, the Great Commission has the highest priority in defining the task of the church. What was the cultural mandate of Genesis 1? And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But something happened. Man sinned and could no longer do that rightfully. But Christ came and he has given us a great commission. And he never did away with the cultural mandate. But, but now we have the actual power to, to go out and change the nations for Christ. And as people are converted, they, they begin to take dominion in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and submit everything to his lordship and expand the kingdom in their lives. Sproul said the Great Commission calls us to flood this world with knowledgeable, articulate Christians who worship God and follow Jesus passionately. As people are converted and begin to obey, we are to disciple them not to hide their light, not to just be a Christian at home, but to say, go back to the cultural mandate of Genesis and to take dominion of everything you touch for the glory of God. Your work, your, your studies, whatever you do, it doesn't matter. 
And our last point quickly here is the help. Such a task is overwhelming. But listen to what Christ says. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. J.C. Rao said, let all true Christians lay hold on these words and keep them in mind. Christ is with us always. Christ is with us wherever we go. He says it is impossible to conceive words more comforting and strengthening and cheering. Christ is with us. Our success and our mission is not left up to us. Christ is with us. And this means two things, our final points here. Number one, we can fulfill our mission with boldness and confidence. Not confidence in our own ability, but confidence because Christ is with us. Let me say something here. Do not allow your theology to determine how you, how you interpret this verse. And here's what I mean by that. There is no way to interpret this verse pessimistically. Or negatively. Christ says, I have all authority. All authority. Now go and make disciples. And I am with you. Where, where is there room for negativity in that? Well, this is a hard task. The world is so dark today. Things are getting worse. He said, I, I'm with you. I have all authority. Go. I'm with you. And notice, he even commands us to teach them to obey all that he commands as though he is counting on them becoming disciples. I'm not sending you on a failure mission here. Go and make disciples, but I can't make disciples, Lord. I have all the power. I have all power and authority, and I'm with you. Now go do it. And when they are converted, teach them to obey all that I command. Dear friends, we should be optimistic and zealous and passionate about this command, and we should do this without hesitation and with confidence, knowing that he has all authority on heaven and on earth, and he is with us. And for our final point here, this means that we should attempt great things for Christ. As one person said, we want to attempt something so great for God that it is doomed to failure unless God is in it. Is that our mentality? Attempt goals like Paul who who went into Ephesus, a city filled with darkness, and preached the gospel. Attempt things like Patrick of Ireland going there by himself to proclaim truth with no other believers nearby. Attempt great things, things that are so great that only God can achieve it. We ought not be limiting God's power through our actions and our unbelief. And one of the misconceptions that stop us from having this type of vision is that we say things like, well, we don't have people in this church to do that. We don't have the resources and the people to to plant other churches and to send out missionaries. But as Harry Reader notes, resources seldom 
precede ministry. And what does he mean by that? Dear friends, we need to have vision and goals for evangelizing this area. Vision and goals for planting churches in Michigan. Vision and goals for planting churches throughout the United States and in other countries. And trusting God that he will provide for the needs of those things. We believe that it is when we have those goals, when we have that vision that God blesses that with the things that we need to fulfill it. And God sends us people who, who sees that and say, I want to be a part of that. But if none of those things are even mentioned, are, are prayed about, are worked towards, we never do it. We must be faithful to our mission and trust God to provide. And I'll leave you with these words of a hymn from the 1800s. The title of this hymn is Mighty Lord, Extend Your Kingdom. May this be our prayer. May this be our vision, our mission as a church and as individuals. And may this be what we work towards. He says, Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom. Be the truth with triumph crowned. Let the lands that sit in darkness hear the glorious gospel sound. From our borders, from our borders to the world's remotest bound. By your arm, eternal Father, scatter far the shades of night. Let the great Emmanuel's kingdom open like the morning light. Let all barriers, let all barriers yield before your heavenly might. Come in all your spirit's power. Come your reign on earth restore. In your strength, ride forth and conquer, still advancing more and more. Till all people, till all people shall your holy name adore. May that be our prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your grace, and for your mercy. We thank you for the commission that you've given us. And we thank you that we can do it with confidence, knowing that all power belongs to Christ and that he is with us, even to the end of the age. Help us to go forth zealously in all that you've given us to do. Not looking at these things as, as burdensome, seeking to avoid them, but seeing this as a joy and a privilege to be part of such a great commission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.